Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open it to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, this is week number two of our winter series, and uh, throughout the winter months, we are exploring the, the life of Abraham in a series that we, uh, that we have called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and we're going to be making our way through Genesis chapters 12 to 25. Um, just while you're getting settled there, I actually want to put an image on the screen for you. Uh, some of you may recognize that building. It is the Cologne Cathedral. Uh, some of you may have been there at some point in your life or your travels. Uh, it is Germany's most popular tourist attraction. Attracts more than 20,000 people a day to come and visit it. Uh, it was at one point the tallest building in the world. The cathedral is famous uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it, it was, it's such an impressive structure. One of the reasons it is famous is because uh, there is said that there is a shrine there that is said to contain the bones of the three wise men who visited Jesus and gave him their gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Kind of interesting in light of the fact that we don't actually know how many wise men made up that caravan to go and visit Jesus. All we know is there were three gifts, but that's not actually why the building fascinates me. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful building. It's an impressive feat of architecture and all of that. But the reason I find this building so fascinating is because it took more than 600 years to build it. Uh, the foundation stone was laid on August the 15th in the year 1248, and the building was finally completed on August the 14th, 1880. So taken just a little longer than the number one highway between 200th and 232nd, right? That little stretch there. Uh, part of the reason that it took 632 years to build this is because it was built in sections. But actually part of the reason it took so long is because there were just long delays along the way. There were periods of political instability. There were other things that happened that it just kind of made everything get distracted and come to a halt. As a matter of fact, there was a, a crane that remained in place partway up one of the towers, and it actually sat there from 1473 until the mid-1800s when work resumed. It just became part of the skyline. So it's like this 400-year period where construction just stopped. Now, I share that not to turn this into a history lecture on the world's great cathedrals, but to say that, that sometimes... I think we can think of things or projects in our lives that we've started but haven't completed. I mean, there are things that we've undertaken and then we've gotten sidetracked or we've gotten distracted from and we've just kind of left those things to the side. So, you know, maybe you started a renovation project in your home. You started it, didn't ever really get around to finishing. It's still sort of sitting there unfinished. Uh, or maybe you started an academic degree. You said, you know, I'm, I'm going with great gusto. I'm jumping in with both feet. I'm going to get this thing done. And then you just kind of put that aside because of change in season of life or whatever it might be. Or maybe you just started a novel. You picked it up and you're, you know, you're going to read this and then you set it aside for an extended period of time and never got back to it. But maybe more importantly, your life looks like that at times and maybe as you kind of look back on things you you know you you know that at one point you had a clear sense of mission and direction and you were going to follow Jesus with your whole heart but for whatever reason you got sidetracked and distracted you got taken up with other pursuits and passions and you just kind of left that for a while 
Well, I entitled this message, Israel Wasn't Built in a Day. The common expression is Rome wasn't built in a day, but it applies to Israel as well. And last week, we started this series. We looked at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, where God appears to Abram, and he makes all of these promises to him. And one of the things he says to him is, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I said last week that there's often a delay between the promise and fulfillment. And what we see in the passage we're going to look at today is that sometimes that delay between promise and fulfillment is actually a delay of our own doing. So I want you to to look at Genesis chapter 12. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 10, and I'm going to read as far as chapter 13, verse 4. And this is God's word, and this is what it says. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Chapter 13 begins with, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord." Well, there's a lot that we could say about this passage, lots of questions that it might raise in our minds, but I want to draw your attention and focus our attention on four observations that we should make from it. And the first one is that the promises of God do not exempt us from the trials of life. Notice again how the passage begins. Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now on its own, that verse might not be very surprising. Famines were common in ancient times. Fluctuations in weather made ancient life uncertain at the best of times. What is surprising about the verse, and what would have been surprising to Abram, I'm sure, was the timing of it. I mean, his adventure has just begun. So remember all those promises, all those great promises he received at the start of chapter 12? Remember that God had said to him, what God had said to him at the start of the chapter, go to the land I will show you. Or again in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. So the land was a promise, but the land was also a problem. There was a famine in the land. 
We don't know how much time transpires in chapter 12, but as you read it, it seems like Abraham no sooner gets the promise, begins his journey, builds an altar and pitches his tent, and a famine comes, right? So he's just getting settled. He's just about to get on with the mission that God has called him to, and this famine happens in the land. Suddenly things change. Life is like that, isn't it? I mean, you get the promise, and then the test comes. You stand at the altar and declare, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And then six weeks later, you're wondering if your marriage will survive at all. The promise of something is often followed by a test. It's the pattern we actually see all through the Bible. And maybe the most surprising example of this is seen in the experience of Jesus. The last two verses of Matthew chapter 3 read like this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what a moment that must have been. The heavens opened. The Spirit descended. The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. That's how Matthew chapter 3 ends. But then the first three verses of Matthew chapter 4 read like this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Jesus' experience went from hearing the Father say, this is my beloved Son, to hearing the devil say, if you are the Son of God. It's the word of assurance from God followed by a test. The Apostle Paul talks about something similar. In 2 Corinthians 12, he describes this experience he had of having this or receiving this great revelation from God, being caught up to the third heaven. And then he immediately follows that by saying, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Mountaintop experiences don't usually last long. Most of life is lived in the valley. So there is the promise, there's God's word of assurance, and that's often followed by a test or a trial. And I point this out because sometimes it seems like we are surprised when testing or trials enter our lives. I mean, if everything is supposed to work together for my good, how can there possibly be hardships in my life? And I've talked with lots of believers through the years who've said something along the lines of, look, I just didn't expect things to go like this. Or this isn't what I signed up for. The reality is that no one escapes life unscathed. No one escapes without tests and trials. 
all of us can and should expect testing. Writing to a group of persecuted Christians in the first century, the Apostle Peter said this. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So Abram might have been surprised. He's been given this land as a, a promise to him, and a famine comes. We might get surprised. But we should remember that the promises of God do not exempt us from the trials of life. Second thing we learn here is that the worries of life often choke out our faithfulness to God. Now, Jesus teaches us this, right? In the parable of the sower, Jesus describes four different types of soils. He talks about what happens when the seed falls on those different types of soils. And one of the soils he describes like this. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So the cares of this world can choke out our proper response to God, the anxieties of life. It's not just that trials come into our lives or that tests come, it's how we respond to those that matters. So I want you to listen now to the promises that were given to Abram in verses 2 and 3. This is what God said to him. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says to him, look, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And at the first sign of trouble, Abraham says, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I think my fate would be better if I went down to Egypt and escaped the famine. Now, scholars debate as to whether or not it was right or wrong for Abram to go to Egypt. I mean, there's no food in Canaan. There is food in Egypt. What was he supposed to do? Well, there's no explicit statement by the narrator about whether or not this was right or wrong. There's no, but what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. No statement like that. I think it demonstrated a lack of trust in God's promises to him. I think the text actually points us in that direction. I'll explain why in a few minutes. But even if that point might be up for debate, you can still see that Abraham, the one that we refer to as the father of faith, had a kind of faltering faith here. Struggled to trust in God's promises. This is what it says in verse 11. So there's this famine. Verse 11 then says, When he saw he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. So this is just kind of extra. I'm throwing this out there for free. But man, that's a great way to begin conversations with your wives, right? I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. I, I'm going to try that out later this afternoon. I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. It would be so great to have a plate of nachos to watch this football game with, right? See how that goes. Okay, don't, don't try that at home. So he gets off to this great start. I know you're a woman beautiful in appearance. Then listen to what he says, though, in verses 12 and 13. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
And we don't know exactly what was going through his mind at this point, other than wanting to survive. On the surface of it, it looks like he's pimping his wife to save his own skin, right? Now, I'm not trying to defend him in any way here, but that, not, that may not quite be right. That might not be what was totally in his mind. We don't know exactly what, what his plan was. The practice of fratriarchy was common at the time. Fratriarchy is like patriarchy, except instead of the father negotiating the terms of marriage for his daughters, the oldest male sibling would sometimes do that. And so Abram's plan might have been a bit of a stall tactic. Look, we're going to enter into this land. It might be hostile territory. We don't know. So why don't you say that you're my sister and, you know, when suitors come or potential suitors come and start negotiating uh, with us, you know, we'll make sure we get enough food and we'll, we'll kind of get out of here unscathed. Maybe he was thinking along those lines. But whatever he was thinking, he didn't count on the fact that Pharaoh would enter the picture. And you don't negotiate with pharaohs, you comply with what they say. And so it says Pharaoh took her to be part of his royal harem. As we look at it, there are a lot of problems with what Abram did here. And he practiced deception. He encouraged his wife to participate in the lie. He put his wife in a potentially dangerous situation. But his biggest issue was actually his unbelief. He did those things because he did not trust in the promises of God. Now remember God's specific promise to him. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So Abraham had the promise of God's protection. But as he's on the verge of entering Egypt, he feels like, that's not enough for me. And rather than believing that things would go well for him because God promised to bless him and protect him, Abraham reasons that the only way things could possibly go well for him in Egypt is if the people appreciate Sarai's beauty and treat him well as her brother. So Abraham employed nothing but human reasoning here. There's no prayer, there's no faith, there's no calling on the name of the Lord. Now, it would be easy for us to sort of sit back and criticize Abram for his lack of trust in God's promises, but how often do we behave in the same way? I mean, how often do we hear God's promises and then trust in ourselves instead or trust in our own human wisdom instead? There's a paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount that I find to be both encouraging and convicting. Jesus teaches us this. He says, therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, those words are a great encouragement because they remind us of God's fatherly love and care for us. But they're also very convicting words. Because how much time do we spend worrying about the very things that Jesus tells us not to be anxious about? And how often do we treat the promises of God as though they're punctuated with question marks instead of exclamation points? So what Abram did. Now there aren't a lot of books that I have read more than once, but I've read The Pilgrim's Progress several times. The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the Christian life. It follows the protagonist named Christian through his difficult journey to the celestial city, which is heaven. And along the way, Christian encounters a number of different individuals, a number of obstacles that sort of stand in his way. And in one scene, he's traveling with a companion named Hopeful when they are captured by giant despair and they're locked up in a place called Doubting Castle. So you see how the allegory works. The giant then throws them into the dungeon without any food or water or light. He tells the pilgrims to do away with themselves because their fates are sealed. He takes them to the courtyard. He shows them the remains of previous specimens he had torn apart. And he tells them that in 10 days he will return and do the same thing to them. On Saturday night about midnight, the two pilgrims begin to pray. And they pray on almost till dawn. And suddenly Christian exclaims, What a fool am I to lie thus, or thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. It worked on the dungeon door, it worked on the outward door to the castle yard, and though the lock worked hard, even the iron gate to the whole complex opened. And off they went back to the king's highway. That scene describes the pattern of our lives sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, God has given us his promise or his promises, but we sit locked in doubting castle because we fail to trust in those promises. So through his word, God tells us that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think so much of our sin can be traced back to our failure to take God at his word. God promises us that he will never leave us, never forsake us. We think, well, that's nice, but I'm going to seek to have my companionship needs met somewhere else. God tells us to flee sexual immorality and uh, and to honor him with our bodies. And we think, look, nobody's going to tell me how to live. God tells us to honor him with the first fruits of our wealth. And we reason, look, I've got so many other things that are more pressing and more important. We need to learn to take God at his word and trust his promises. The worries of life will choke out our faithfulness to God. The third thing we discover in this passage, which is that the faithlessness of man doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. I think part of what's interesting about this story is that Abram is still blessed in spite of his faithlessness. God had promised to bless him, 
And Abram does end up leaving Egypt with a lot more than he came in with. It says here that Pharaoh gave him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants, female donkeys and camels. The camels in particular at that time were usually only associated with royalty or with those who had great wealth. And so Abraham comes into Egypt with nothing. He's just seeking daily provisions and he leaves with a fleet of luxury vehicles. God does bless him. But God had also promised that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 17 says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh takes Sarai into his harem. We don't know if there were relations or not. And he and his household are immediately struck with plagues. Now, just how Pharaoh discerned that this affliction was because of Abram and Sarai is something we're not told. Maybe, maybe Sarai told him. Maybe it was just the fact that everyone was afflicted except them. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that in spite of Abraham's faltering faith, God showed himself faithful to his promise. Now, we have to be careful with this observation. The observation that the faithlessness of man doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God doesn't mean we can just then do whatever we want, live however we please. God's still going to bless us. That's not what I'm saying. Last week, we saw that one of the promises God made to Abram was that through him, all the families or all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we said that that was a promise of a program, that God was going to work out his program through Abram and his descendants. God had a program or a plan that was much bigger than anything Abram would experience in his lifetime. And that program would find its completion in Jesus. Now, we look back on that now. We have a record of the history of what transpired between now and the time Jesus, or between then and the time Jesus came. And there were some dark periods along the way. There were rebellions and idolatry and wicked rulers and false prophets and a collective turning away from God's word and God's ways. But in spite of all that, God's program continued to move forward. God is always faithful to the promises he makes. He's a covenant-keeping God. And the faithlessness of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. The Apostle Paul appears to be quoting an early Christian hymn or creed when he says this. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And this is what we see getting worked out in the life of Abram. Even when he is faithless, God remains faithful. And that's good news. There's nothing anyone can do to thwart God's purposes in the world. Final thing we see here is that the grace of God means that we can begin again. Now, if grace isn't a word you normally associate with the Old Testament, then you're reading it wrong. The Old Testament is filled with stories of God's grace, and this story is no exception. So I'm dipping into chapter 13 for this. But the description that we get in the first four verses of chapter 13 is fascinating to me. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, 
And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, if those verses sound familiar to, it, to you, it's because they should. I want you to look back at verse 8, which we covered last week as Abram began his journey. This is what it told us. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So what is Abram doing here? Well, he's retracing his steps, isn't he? He's going back to the very place where he began, back to square one. And the language of the text actually forces that conclusion on us when it says he went to the place where his tent had been at the beginning and to the place where he had made an altar at the first. So I said earlier that I think the text actually points us in the direction of answering the question, was it wrong for Abram to go to Egypt or not? I think it's telling us it. look, he departed from where he was supposed to be. And I think his geographical movements, his retracing of his steps are an expression of his repentance. He goes back toward the Negev and then back to the place between Bethel and Ai. He's a bit like the builders of the Cologne Cathedral. He's left it off for a while. But now he's coming back to the starting place and starting over again. And God's grace allows us to do that. See, Abram doesn't just return to the same place physically as if that's sort of a a magic pill. When he returns, he does exactly what he did the first time he was there. He calls upon the name of the Lord. There's so much grace in that. Prodigals can always come home. And notice that when he returns, God doesn't pull him aside and say to him, you know, you really blew it, Abram. I gave you these promises. You failed to trust me when trouble came. You're out. I don't know who needs to hear this, but that's not how God operates. God does not discard his servants. Sometimes we think, you know, our failure to trust God, our failure in marriage, our failure with our kids or our failure and falling into a pattern of sin means we blew it. We can't go home. I stepped out of the will of God. Now God could never use me again. That's a lie. The story of Abraham reminds us that God has grace toward his followers. God promised to make him into a great nation and that's exactly what God will do. We need to know this about God. He doesn't discard us when we falter. I've always been encouraged with this truth from the story of Jonah. Many of you know the story. The book of Jonah begins like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So God calls Jonah, says, Jonah, I've got this assignment for you. And Jonah says, ah, no thanks. And runs in the opposite direction, as far away from the presence of God as he can go. But God doesn't let Jonah off the hook so easily. 
He sends a storm to disrupt Jonah's sailing trip. Jonah still wants to run. He wants the sailors to toss him into the sea. And you know the story, God sends this large fish to swallow him up and then to spit him out on dry land. That's chapter 2. But then comes the incredible opening verse of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You see, God could have done things differently. He could have said, Look, I'm just going to get a different prophet. I don't care about Jonah. He doesn't want to do it. That's not what God does. In the same way, God didn't abandon Abraham because of his failure to trust. And God has not abandoned you either. Now, there may be parts of your life where you feel like you've made an absolute mess of it. And some of you need to do what Abram did here. You need to go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the place you started. One Old Testament commentator, Ian Duguid, asks, asks an insightful question that I think all of us ought to consider this morning. He said, what kind of faith do you have? Does failure drive you away from God, or does it drive you back to square one, back to the altar, the place of sacrifice, so that you can call on the name of the Lord? I think that's a good question for us to consider. See, when you first think about the story of Abraham, you might think that, well, it's a story that that calls you to have greater faith, step out and take some risks in your life. And it does that. But it is at its core a story that calls us to a relationship with God. It calls us to the kind of relationship with God where we come to him not just with our dreams of doing great things, but we come with our failures as well. And the call some of you need to hear today more than anything else is the call to come home. To come back to the place you began with the Lord and renew your relationship with him. To call upon his name again. I'm just going to pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace you extend to your people. And Lord, we know that sometimes we do depart we do step out not in faith we step out and move the other direction because we don't know how things are going to turn out or because we trust in our human wisdom and so lord i pray for all of us that we would continually come back to you continually come back to your altar to the sacrifice you have made for us that we would trust in that and not in ourselves we pray this in jesus name amen